I have to tell the people about the Patreon. Yes, you do. Patreon.com slash SMDB. SMDB, like so many damn books. For just a dollar, you can join up and you get access to all the exclusive content that I record just for the Patreon. Also, you get to join the book club. The So Many Damn Books book club. It's been some of the best conversations I've had about books. It really always sounds like a blast. I usually like come home and just hear like giggles coming from the library. So it's a great time. You should join. And I would love to have more people join the fray. You may or may not know that Christopher runs this whole show himself on the hosting side, on the technical side, everything. This is a one-man show, truly. He does it all. Support your boy Christopher. Even at the dollar level really helps. So uh, join up patreon.com slash smdb i'd love to have you patreon.com slash smdb on with the show i love those shelves yeah they look really nice like billies. nice they they fit so perfectly in a way i feel like is you know that's always the dream of a billy and then you get it in and you're like oh this doesn't quite i put them in like when we moved in here and I cut one shelf, I put it in backwards and that always bothers me. And then slowly over time, they've been bagging. So uh-huh. I don't know how they would last in the long run, but that, they're not bad for the short one. Yeah. <laughs> this, is the, this is the craziest part, I think, of still. It's just like how, how intimate we're just in each other's houses now. It's just like, it's not just one person hosting. It's everybody is like in, inviting you into your living room. Yeah. It's a pretty, it's a pretty weird situation for sure. So many, so many, so many damn books. Welcome to So Many Damn Books. I'm Christopher. I'm Drew. And we have Eugene Lim joining us in the Zoom hyperspace version of the damn library. Eugene, welcome. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Eugene Lim is the author of the novels Fog and Car and The Strangers and Dear Cyborgs. His writing has appeared in The Brooklyn Rail, The Baffler, Days, Fence, Little Star, Granta, and elsewhere. He is a high school librarian, runs Ellipsis Press, and lives in Queens, New York with Joanna and Felix. And you are here to talk about your new novel, Search History. And we're so glad to have you. It's so f- I've, I have been dying to talk to you since reading Dear Cyborgs. And just in, in that way of like, man, when his next book comes out, we got to do this. <laughs> so I'm stoked that this is happening. I'm excited to be here. I did listen just to prepare. I listened to a couple uh, uh, snatches before. And I listened to the one where you said uh, you went or somebody said they went looking for the book and they, they, they couldn't find it because it was hidden under a bunch of Canas cards. Uh-huh. Uh, that, was a, <laughs> uh, that was pretty good. Pretty appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly yeah, that was that was me. That's what happened. Um, <laughs> and I'm so excited that I did find it underneath all the struggling. I'm before we get there, I want to talk about the drink um, that I am very excited to share with you. I'm calling it inauthentic eggnog. Inauthentic eggnog. So I love eggnog. Uh, in its normal form. However, unfortunately, I've become more and more lactose intolerant over the past few years, which is just a bummer for someone who loves eggnog as much as I do. That's tough. Yeah. So I was looking for various vegan recipes of things, dairy-free recipes of things, and I came across 
across this vegan um, coquito recipe, which is a Puerto Rican um, Christmas drink made from, it, coquito means little coconut. Everything in it is vegan, except for you're supposed to sweeten it with sweetened condensed milk. Um, and then I discovered that you can actually also get sweetened condensed coconut milk, and it makes for an incredible cocktail. The other thing that was really fun is you take, um, you spike this with rum, um, and you're actually supposed to use three types of Puerto Rican rum, and um, that's a lot. So I, what I did was take white rum and then just infused it with a couple cinnamon sticks and half a cup of raisins. And I did that overnight Ooh. in the fridge and used that to spike the, um, which is just a bunch of coconut milk, um, almond milk, and a little bit of maple syrup. It's an incredible drink. It tastes a lot. It doesn't taste like coconut like you'd think because of you know the nutmeg and clove and spices you put into it. Um, but I just sort of thought like with the inauthentic sushi restaurant in um, that space and, and where how all of those conversations took place there and then like the emphasis on authenticity, like this is not Coquito as people, anybody who drinks eggnog or Coquito would know it. But I do think that they would still very much enjoy <laughs> the inauthentic eggnog. So that is my, I don't know why I did it like a presentation, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I have a, I have a, I have a friend who is uh, the cocktail master of our group, or he he likes to uh, mix the drink for us. So you, you usually post the recipes, yeah? Yes, I do. Yes. Okay. So, so I will have him. Uh, I will ask him. I will cajole him to try to. Uh, the the whole overnight infusion thing is a, a little extra, but maybe he will do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's honestly worth it you know it, i didn't use it all in the cocktail and just having it on its own with a little bit of seltzer is also delicious um it, tur it turns out that i like the taste of raisins when you're not actually chewing a ra i don't really like raisins in general i was gonna say when did you how did you land on raisins as someone who doesn't really like raisins this was in the recipe uh, um someone's uh. recipe had this as like a little hack because they're like maybe you don't want to buy three bottles of liquor um <laughs> which I appreciated. Just using white <laughs> rum and spicing it yourself was a, a, was a fun sort of customizing moment. So that's the drink. I think they could serve it in that restaurant, although maybe not a, a side sushi. I don't think so. Drew, what are you drinking? Yeah, what are you drinking? I'm drinking a Montenegroni. Ah, okay. I did that thing of looking at my shelf and I was like, what do I have? I want to make something. Um, we just got, we got really good gin from, uh, oh my God, Finback Brewery's um, gin arm, whose name I can't remember off the top of my Half -tone. head right now. Halftone, yes. Got some like very cool gin from them. And then uh, I bought a, a big bottle of the 4th Ave Amaro that they're now selling it in big bottles instead of just the little bottles. And I was like, oh, what can I do something with gin in Amaro? And it turns out, yes. <laughs> and what about you, Eugene? Are you drinking anything? I'm drinking mineral water, but I'm going to pour myself a scotch halfway through this, I think. Just because <laughs> nice. I think it'll help. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you should. I, I'm going to, I'm all for that. People who listen to this podcast probably love books. And if you love books, you're probably going to love Scribd. Forbes and TechCrunch and Wired all called Scribd 
Netflix for books. And that means that there are millions of ebooks, audiobooks, magazines, and more that you get with your subscription to this incredible service. You also get thoughtfully curated editor's picks and smart recommendations based on what you've read. Scribd is incredibly easy to use, really fun. I used it to listen to Lisa Letts' Spellman series, and that was really wonderful. So I always get a warm feeling when I see the app icon on my phone. And you too can use Scribd. Right now, Scribd is offering our listeners a free 60-day trial. Go to try.scribd.com smdb for your free trial. That's try.scribd.com slash smdb to get 60 days of Scribd for free. Drew, do you want to talk about what did you buy? That's the next thing we do. Oh, yes. I have a fun one. And it's, um, I, ju- I just now realized that it's related kind of to Eugene's book. I finally dove into Brian Evanson earlier this year. I read his most recent story collection, The Glassy Burning Floor of Hell, and I loved it so much. And I had that moment of like, oh man, he has such a backlist. I have to get into it. And Coffee House was doing this lovely, I think they still are, where you can get um, the first four books that they did of his for like 60 bucks, which is kind of a steal. It's three novels and a story collection, Last Days, Father of Lies, The Open Curtain, and A Collapse of Horses. And when all of them are put together, they make like a weird beast on the cover, which I think is very cool. Um, but so I, those showed up and I, I've just had them on my floor and I'm just looking at the, like the pick and I'm like, this is, how am I supposed to put them on a shelf when I have this cool, how am I supposed to read them when I have this cool monster image? So that's what I bought. Nice. Eugene, how about you? Um, well, let's see. Something that I got, which I haven't yet really read, is uh, the poet Paulo Javier's book. But it's really, um, it's really, I have glanced through it. And it's, it's like comic book meets, poet, meets poetry. And it's pretty sick. It's great. He's got some really interesting um, things wow. going on. And I think... I think the idea behind it, I, I shouldn't speak for it, is that there is a kind of um, idea of the panels. You jump from panel to panel to panel. You jump from a line of poetry to poetry. And he's kind of playing with it, playing how these things jump, uh, how you make things move uh, with uh, sequencing like them, like that. And uh, there, the 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 artwork. I think I forget how many different artists he has, but it's it's. Uh, it feels a little bit like a comic book, a little bit like a poetry book, and it's, it's something new. So uh, I'm eager to check that one out. Awesome. That looks cool. really cool. Christopher, what about you? I am so excited about receiving an arc of this book. Um, Dana Stevens, who is the Slate film critic um, and an inspiration for why I wanted to get into podcasting, to be honest. Slate Culture Gab Fest was one of those things where it was an early influence on on trying to make this show. Um, but so she has her first um, book coming out. It's nonfiction. It's called Cameraman, Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema and the um, Invention of the 21st Century. Ooh. 
And so it's looking at the, not just Buster Keaton's life, which is long and varied, but also just the, the situation around him and the society that he was influencing and being influenced by. And I think that sort of holistic approach to a biography sounds really interesting to me. I, I'm not sure that I've read anything like that. Maybe um, the Elvis Presley biography comes close to that idea, the Peter Goralnik one, um, mm -hmm. Last Train to Memphis and the other one. Um, but so I'm really excited. Buster Keaton fascinates me. So uh, I'm so excited that it's this person writing this book. It seems like just perfect. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. the moment we've all been waiting for yes eugene would you tell our listeners because also i genuinely just want to hear how you would describe this book to mm. people yeah i was hoping you guys were going to do that <laughs> <laughs> i get asked this question occasionally and uh, it's it, the way i approach it has been this uh it is bef uh before you look at it i think um how i feel about it is is it's largely about grief, uh, losing someone, losing a loved one, and kind of confronting and thinking about grief. Um, if you, if I tell you that, and then you read the book, it, I think it might defy your expectations, or you might not. Uh, it might be a little different. You might get a different experience than what you were expecting. But that's the underlying um, kind of hidden engine for me. On top of that, there's this. There are plots where there's this robot dog, this cybernetic dog, who either anticipates your your deepest wishes, is either the embodiment of a lost loved one, a reincarnation of a lost loved one, or just uh, an AI which is capable of of um, convincing you that they, it's the embodiment of a lost loved one. And there's a global, globe-trotting kind of chase after this dog, um, and then there are also conversations interspersed. Uh, kind of philosophical conversations where they're talking about loss and talking also about AI and art. And uh, all those kind of come together to have in a short book uh, where I think what it really is, is it's a confrontation with grief and then the uh, and the kind of globetrotting adventure, action adventure story becomes in a weird way a uh, the confrontation with grief becomes this way we tell ourselves stories to kind of um, uh, make sense of that, which is really hard to make sense of or impossible to make sense of, this sense of loss. And uh, we either distract ourselves or convince ourselves that something else is happening or something else is more important or this these chase scenes are what's really going on in our lives. <laughs> and uh, I think that's, that's, uh, that's, that's, the, that's the way I would describe the book. Mm. I like that. I like that a lot. Both of us are enormous fans of Dear Cyborgs, and this shares some of the same characters and seems like, in some ways, a continuation. And I'm curious how, if you meant it to feel like a continuation, or if it's, um, if you're just still really attracted to these ideas, these are something that you didn't realize that you were still turning around. I think some of the content, some of the theme is new, but it's a continuation in the sense that uh, in Dear Cyborgs and in the previous book, The Strangers, there was this method where <clears throat> I describe it as a character comes onto the stage, 
tells a long story and then kind of fades out and someone else comes on and, and tells a long story. So it's a series of monologues. And each of those monologues is kind of a different world, maybe with a different physics or kind of a different kind of vibe or, or um, feel. And all those worlds sit next to each other. And in a way, when you, when you come, to get, come to them all at once, it, um, all those worlds, you see how they align in a particular way. Um, and that was, that's kind of a structure I was discovering or, or tinkering with in the, in the past couple books. And so in that sense, this is a continuation of that. Mm. Um, but I think the new thing or the, the, the place that it goes, it's a little different is, a, is it gets a little bit more personal, a little, uh, there's the, the grief aspect and the aging aspect and the middle age aspect and the loss aspect. And I think those were things like cyborgs is, is more concerned with the political and the culture of protests. And this one felt a little more personal. Hmm. How did you land on that very theatrical? Christopher and I both have theater in our backgrounds. And there is something so, it lights me up when there's that, that idea of like somebody walks on stage, there's a spotlight, they walk up to it. And the way that you describe it, I've never seen anybody do it that way. And how did you, how did you come around to this monologue-ish structure? I don't know. That was kind of a, it was a kind of an interesting jump. I think of it, uh, thinking back on it, I, I don't know if this is true, but there is this kind of uh, moment of autofiction that kind of comes mm -hmm. into the world uh, in the, let's say, in the past decade for American writing or for fiction. And I think it comes on the tails of, or is, it uh, manifests itself because of, or as a reflection of, kind of social media, like all these projections of ourselves mm. into the world, and maybe also reality television, but there's a, some kind of impulse that moves towards that. And the monologue is a way that people do that. It's a way that they present themselves uh, and tell a long story about themselves. So, um, and so I think it's related to that. Uh, some kind of uh, the, the literary version of self-presentation and the different artifice that goes into that. Yeah. I really like that. I like, too, that they can, they can sit structurally. Like you were saying, there's this sense of one comes in. Like, I first read um, an excerpt from this, the um, Basement Food Court of Forking Paths, was published by breaking and entering lit mag. And I read that and that sense of how is this going to fit in? And then once I saw it in the novel, sort of that, that feeling of coming into it from one angle. And then on the way out, you're sort of, I don't know, looking in the rear view mirror and the rest of the book shifts. Mm. How do you do that? That feels like a very <laughs> cool structural trick. I was worried about, and I thank uh, um, Breaking and Entering Press and, and David Gonzalez for um, publishing that chapbook. Um, sometimes you take a, take a novel and you have a piece and it seems like it stands alone and you send it, out, send it out in the world. But these are monologues and you would think that they could be easily excerptable, but they kind of depend on the things before and after them. So I was a little worried that that piece as a standalone piece kind of falls in short, falls short, or has a little extra mystery that is unresolved to it. Um, but when it's placed in the book, I think that the themes of friendship and loss 
kind of resonate stronger. Um, and so how, how each piece sits next to other piece, how you sequence and all that, I think that is a kind of uh, art that you, uh, it's the art of collage. And if, for visual collage, it's really about, um, you establish some rhythm, you, you know, between uh, either by color or by pattern, or you, you, have, uh, you, have, you have to balance your composition. You know, if it gets too heavy over here, you have to kind of um, balance it somehow. So I think it's that kind of thing. The pacing here is too fast, so let's slow it down a little. Or um, we're we're we we had too much zany fun over here. Let's just let's make it a little contemplative. But also to shift from one from one uh, trope or one kind of feeling to another, that does take a little bit of um, uh, uh, massaging so that the reader comes along with you. Because often, mm -hmm. you know, you, you, sometimes you'll read those. Uh, for lack of a better word, those A B role types of books where mm -hmm. that you know you're swapping from character to character, either one and two, or sometimes several. And sometimes there's like a wariness when you get to that next thing. Okay, I'm in this world. I got to reset and restart myself. So I think one of the things, and that may be true of of this book and my books as well, but it, it you like to give a little bit of handrail or a little bit of transition to allow that shift and it doesn't seem so jarring and how that's done is and it's you try to make the beginning capture something it's to signal okay here i am i'm ready i'm going with you on this this other ride um or or you or you just soften the entry in some way so that they go okay i'll, I'll go with you there mm. um so it's something like that i think the sequencing is a is a is a thing and that i worry about because it's a collection of bits and uh, you don't want to i don't want to write a uh, um, a collection of linked stories right mm -hmm. that, that that kind of um sometimes they're great but it's, it's also kind of a cliche that you don't that i don't think of these pieces as trying for um and you uh, and you're worried i that whether this thing which is a little different is a novel holds up as a novel holds up as a piece that is uh, fulfilling enough of the promises that you've given the reader that they picked up, uh, pick up picked up a novel. I was questioning whether or not um, a novel is your preferred term for what this is, or would you have rather come up with your own <laughs> search history, a contemplation that you know, like they, people sometimes change what their their colon designation is, their subtitle. So I was I was curious if if that's fitting for you if you feel like yes i've written a novel it's a, it's a novel that sits on the same shelf as all other novels yeah well i think when you if you write things that are in the category of experimental fiction you're often neither fish nor fowl and mm -hmm. uh, i think it's most cases uh, i like being called a novel i i mean because it's it's it um then it can uh people can understand what it is or people can Put it in the general ballpark. Mm -hmm. um, in the uh, in the uh, um, I run a small press called Ellipsis Press, and we have some we have like we haven't for a long time because um, I haven't gotten around to it. But we have submissions in the past, and one thing I would say is that we like novels that uh, um, that uh, don't necessarily that that are weird, but don't necessarily look so better than those that novels that look weird, but actually quite normal. 
you know? So it's, mm. it's kind of nice to have, like there are things that are very transgressive or, or formally they look, um, they look uh, like they're unfamiliar or they're defamiliarizing. But when you get to them, a lot of the things are, are uh, maybe it's more familiar or maybe it's more, um, uh, hackneyed is, is a little too strong, but maybe it's, it's less vibrantly out there than you would have expected. Uh, so I like the ones and I like people who actually come at you kind of um, normally looking and then you talk to them for a while or you read, read a book for a while and you're, oh, this is actually quite strange and quite, uh, it's taken me someplace where I wasn't expecting. Mm. I really like that. It feels right for this book too. I mean, I, I think about a moment in Dear Cyborgs that I, has endeared me to you forever. And it's like they're talking about, I forget exactly what they're talking about. But they're like trudging through the snow on the way to a supervillain's lair. And just that sort of like very absurd comic book huge thing. And the sort of that moment for me sticks because it is that. It's like, oh, okay, it's a novel. And then I'm reading and I'm like, this is not like any novel I have ever read. Mm -hmm. And there's a... Um, a sort of ongoing underlying thing in search history about AI. And it, as we talk about like novels that present themselves more or less normally at first and then sort of get weird versus the novel that's weird up front, I feel like right now all of the attempts at AI writing are pretty weird up front. Mm -hmm. But there is this, I don't know, I don't know if you both feel this, this fear, this worry, this question of like will will ai ever be able to write a novel and that's a huge thing in this book and i guess the question is do you do you worry about that do you think that ai will ever be able to not only pull off like traditional literary fiction but sort of this this more tactile thing that we're talking about it's a question that i'm not sh even though the book worries about it i think what the book is it seems to worry about it. I think what the book is actually worrying about is this um, conflation, confusion uh, that is that seems to be right upon us. That is hard for us to even comprehend. Where the the machine and the human are becoming confused and conflated. So the epigraph of the book is friendly. one of them is friendly. Wood saying uh, a human. The, the book is the closest thing to a human being. Um, and I think we understand how that's true. Like you, you hold a book, you love a book. Uh, a writer will say, "I put myself, I put all of myself on that on in that book." A reader mm -hmm. will say, um, "I I hold or I hold a I hold the writer in my hands." Um, so you can see how somehow a book spiritually embodies a human being. These latest AI that are working on this uh, natural language processing stuff. Uh, they are being fed the internet. They, they're fed, being fed all of our speech. Uh, and uh, the future ones will be probably fed this conversation. Uh, AI, I heard this AI scientist joke, like this will be, will be fed into this machine in the future. Um, if that's the case, you put those two thoughts together. A book is the closest thing to a human being. These machines have eaten all of our speech. Like it, at some point, the, the um, 
which is which is containing more of our humanity you know there there is a mm -hmm. little bit of that as a possibility um i don't know if this particular structure will be able to do it but i think that's an the, that's an interesting question where um we are uh what will that machine who has all of our thoughts in it uh when they spit something out will it spit something that will be very human or will be will be moving or and where will it get this energy that is moving us you know so i think that's an interesting question i think it's not that far in the future in some ways um, whether we read a book in our lifetimes that we go that a computer writes and we go ah, it's a great book i don't know if that's true <laughs> um, but but i think that, that but that whatever is happening with ai's development right now is 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 going to have a huge impact on is having and will have a huge impact on us, just like the internet had a huge impact on us. So I think it's ongoing and revolutionary and uh, also insidious and we're inside of it, so it's hard to see it. I think that's why I'm actually really drawn to fiction these days that that deals with the internet head on, that it's the internet as part of the novel, that characters use Google or, you know, like interact with it in some naturalistic way to how we actually use it especially because it's been you know two decades now of being online at least um it seems like that fiction should be more and varied but it seems like we're only just seeing it um have you noticed that as well yeah there, i think in the la in cyborgs there's some there's a buried line that i think is generated this book or was part of this book uh the, the part of search history and the buried line was does a does a uh, I, I don't even know if it's does a search history but does an internet search uh uh have a narrative something like that or does an internet search tell a story mm. um and we are uh yeah i think it's hard it's hard the novel in some ways is a can be a calcified form like it's hard for it to incorporate all this stuff and to incorporate this new way we're using language all the time um and the early predictions of us going into some kind of hypertextual the novel turning into this hypertextual experience isn't quite panning out it seems i mean we have a hypertextual experience but it's not the novel um and i think what the novel is can do is something different this linear experience which nonetheless can reflect back to us this constant hyperactivity and kind of hyper referentiality and um this kind of simultaneity but it's in this human form where we read in a linear way absorb things one thing at a time at a time um and and that's kind of incredible i think this that this linear static art form can reflect this fragmented hyper uh referenced uh atmosphere of text that we live in i like that in the way that it like the idea that human beings move through time for now anyway as far as we all know in one direction and like that the novel is maybe the best art form to do the same thing of like no matter how collagey it gets or how wild the design like you're still reading through it ultimately from beginning to end that's the argument yeah <laughs> yeah that makes me feel very comfortable <laughs> uh i think that's why books remain the the best comfort because there is look at this like we can pinpoint where it began it's page one <laughs> yeah well and that's why also uh 
uh, it's close to human beings, right? Because mm -hmm. you and I are talking right now and uh, the crosstalk is minimal and it takes us, it, it, we have to hear each other one word at a time pretty much. Mm. Yeah. Some of the um, moments in this book, visual moments, there's actual pictures and things, um, but not every time that I would expect one. Like I, I expected an, um, a painting by the artist that they're talking about in the cross Takia section, which is super fun, by the way, was one of my favorite parts of the book. It was this <laughs> section where everybody's having different conversations or there's a couple different conversations going on at the same table and you're sort of having to piece together which part goes to which conversation. It felt sort of like a game, which is very exciting. Um, but I wonder, because you brought up the hypertext novel and that sort of was the promise of it, that we were going to be able to click on things and see that picture. And, you know, I feel like some people have experimented with it, but no one is like, oh yes, give me the next, give me my next hypertext novel. Do you... But it's funny because it's far back to the original way that we made books with illuminated manuscripts of like making pictures of everything, all of the most important uh, visuals. And I wonder if you would like to be more visual in books, like would you have liked to have put every visual that you um, were actually referencing in the text with it? I think, uh... I no. I think that I think that the, I wouldn't. I don't want to. I don't want to be <laughs> well, particularly. A, <laughs> no, I don't want to be a particular maximalist. Like I don't want to. I don't want to throw every visual that is possible there. Uh, but I, um, I think the two things I would say about it is the, uh, uh, in part and and uh, he's mentioned is Sebald is mentioned and Sebald uses images in a particular way. They are not, they seem photo documentary, but they're, but he is, he's admitted that they're pretty manipulated. Um, and they're not brilliant photos, but they're just like moments of realia put into it to give either kind of a gesture towards realism or gesture towards documentation, but is in fact part of the fiction. Um, and the other thing is, and that's why, well, th there is a picture of uh, Miyoko Ito's photograph as a frontispiece, but the, the second image that's, that you confront is a kind of uh, an illustration that, uh, of a scene that happens at the very end of the book, um, or later in the book, I should say. And, the, and I thought of different, place, different moments to put it in the book, and I put it in the front for... Uh, I don't know, a wicked sense of humor or, or off, <laughs> off sense of humor reasons. But the, the other reason is because when you, maybe you've experienced this, you're reading, when you were a kid or you were, when you read these illustrated books, the image would always be a few pages before or after the thing. Mm -hmm. And then when you came to it, it was always slightly different from how you wanted the hero to look like or wanted the situation to look like. Um, and so there was always this disjunction this, between the image and, the, and what you read. Um, and I always thought that was interesting, uh, partly because the book holds all the different types of images possible. And your head holds this one image, the, the artist who drew it holds another image, and there are, every reader holds a different image uh, that is a, a different illustration or different kind of 
uh, images that, uh, that the story is telling. Um, so I think the, the disjunction between the two shows that shows how much is in the how much is uh, is is potent or possibly comes from the text. Mm. But a lot of the images are um, are are sometimes they're comic relief. Sometimes they're 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 just like uh, they're they're breaks to go. Uh, okay, uh, well here's a different way to look at the same thing, and then we're going to move on. Also, since mm. you had asked before about sequencing. I think sometimes the images work in that way too. Right, it's a breath. I want to ask you about writing about grief, specifically around around the loss of friends. And there are moments in this book that that gesture towards autobiography. I found myself thinking of um, Kevin Barry's Beetlebone where it's this novel about John Lennon. And then in the middle of it, there's this auto fiction, autobiographical thing of Kevin Barry walking around the Dakota, sort of thinking about John Lennon in the present. And I, I think that writing about grief is such a hard thing to do. And when it's done well, it's so marvelous. And I loved the, the fractured, disjoint, collage sense of this novel because that is how I have been thinking about grief recently. And so I suppose in, in whatever way you want to talk about it, I would just love to hear you talk about the decision for that to be the engine of this book, what it was like putting that onto the page, all of it. Such a big and common uh, experience. Yeah. Um, and it's such a common experience, but it's also such a complicated and big experience that um, I don't know, uh, I feel, um, what's the word, insecure if I have uh, addressed it properly in the book even. Mm. And um, because I don't think one can have a definitive response. You know, one has this ongoing kind of constantly morphing response some of it shameful, some of it uh, you, you want to keep private, some of it you want to be, uh, um, some of some it you want to have known, some of, some of it you want to shout from the rafters, you know, that kind of thing. And it's a, it's a whole gamut uh, and with pit, pitfalls about uh, being overly sentimental or being, um, uh, being somehow emotionally manipulative. So if you want to approach it kind of honestly, um, but also say something about it. I wasn't, I, you know, it's not, it's not, I didn't find it easy to do. <laughs> and, um, and it was fairly fresh. Uh, the experience that I'm talking about was that my friend passed away uh, right when Dear Cyborgs came out. Mm. And uh, I was just writing, you know, for a while. Um, and sometimes I thought, well, uh, this could go in or, or maybe this would go in. Um, and then after a while, I think you do not know how you're feeling. You know, there's a lot of times where you don't know, am I feeling numb? Am I, am I about to sob? Am I, when will I sob? Like there's, a, there's, there's all kinds of emotions deeply held in the body that, uh, that you don't necessarily have articulate access to via language. Um, 
so that was one thing that was that was tricky because you go to your writing desk you go to your writing habit and you try to um you try to stay open and these things uh come out in different ways so that that's one thing it was just tricky is all i'm trying to say um and i it was a formidable thing that i still nonetheless wanted to do wanted to try mm. to do um and i also so i think that's what I tried to do, um, capture the experience of grief, maybe not from like, uh, tearjerker is a little bit, has this pejorative sense, but I didn't necessarily look for it to make cathartic release. Mm -hmm. um, but it was maybe to touch upon how, how one confronts those, how one confronts loss. Mm -hmm. What are the things, what are the stages, what are the things that one goes through both uh, both kind of in a thinky way as well as kind of in a heartfelt way it, I, it works <laughs> it works i was surprised at how i was not anticipating being hit emotionally by this book in the ways that it did there's the there's the guy who loses his father in the book and and he says you know everybody told me things like uh i've I think, you know, this experience will mean something to you later or grief is whatever you're going through right now. And, and it says something like, uh, though all these people's advice were, were, were probably true, it was nonetheless entirely unhelpful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's no roadmap. You brought us... Cesar Ira's work. You brought us uh, conversations by him. And um, I'm curious to hear why you brought that book and, and how you feel about Ira in general. Well, the first book that I suggested was this monster, was this doorstop, the Haruki Murakami, <laughs> right? Killing yes. Commandantori, which is a, in one sense, is a, is a much more kind of uh, traditional popular read. Um, and is brilliant, I think. I think Murakami is brilliant. And this book, the Cesar Ayres Conversations, I realized afterwards they're actually pretty similar <laughs> in a strange way. They're, <laughs> they're older artists uh, looking back over their, perhaps, this is, might be projection on my part, but they're older artists looking back and thinking about the art of making metaphors, the art of writing fiction, and what that means. Uh, and that's how I kind of read the Ira as well. It's like, uh, in one sense, it's this uh, send up or satire of this overly pedantic kind of uh, narrator who is um, trying to uh, re is, is telling the reader is this recapitulation of this uh, conversation he has had with another friend uh, where they're talking about a movie that they saw where, uh, where they get into an argument about whether an actor is actually uh, and the character that he's playing are um, are the same thing, are real or not real. So it's a it's if you if you step back from the the flow of conversation that the narrator is saying, it's a dizzying level of uh, artifice. You know, there's the actor that's playing a, a character in a movie discussed by two characters written by Cesar, discussing whether uh, the differences between reality and fiction. <laughs> but in both books, the Murakami and the Ira, it's kind of about, well, I spent all this, I spent my time writing fiction, making up stories, making up these metaphors. And I think the, 
the conclusion is, you know, they can be bad or they can be good, but um, they have it. Do they don't have to point to anything. They don't. They don't necessarily have to have uh, like they're not codes to resolve. They're not symbols to resolve. But they are fictions. They are things that I have made that are in the world that kind of have their own reality and their own meaning within them, and they stand kind of by themselves. Um, so that's why I like both books. And the Ira, in particular, I think um, points to things that uh, search history is interested in, uh, in terms of the, these ideas of uh, of continuity and breaking continuity. That's that's the other reason I love Ira. Uh, I don't love every book that Ira has has <laughs> that I have read. And I've also heard. I don't know if this is true, but I've heard a couple people tell me that he's not the there might be better, better translations possible for him. Um, but this book, I think, uh, kind of, for me, hits, uh, hits a home run because uh, it's funny. It's, it, it kind of feels like it's complete. Um, and it, it talks almost directly to the reader about Ira's uh, ideas about, um, continuity being uh, being something that can totally be played with and that and the other thing that he has created these he has created this 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 genre for himself you asked yeah. you kind of asked me if I if I like being called a novelist well you know I'm glad to be called a novelist I'm glad because um, you know it's a it's a uh, it's a nameable genre for me but Ira has Ira has created this his own thing that he does repeatedly over and over and over again and it's a it's a kind of vessel where he can do a thing and sometimes the things that he does you know are whiffs or or, or, <laughs> or like or, or like gestures that almost make it and you go okay and i think he'd be fine with that he understands that he's he's in the attempt constantly but this one is where all the things i think the pieces worked out at least for me i am um, i hadn't known this is um my second ira that i've ever read and I did not know until you sort of alluded to the, his style of writing and his, I think you said something about like his project. Um, <laughs> and I didn't know what that meant because I'd never, I just read ghosts and sort of saw that as a particular thing and knew that he was always being published, lovingly published, by the way. The, the editions of his books are often just the most beautiful thing like that has been coming out. Like you just see these, these really lovely designs and it's just like, Oh, he has another one. Like I, you just, I don't know. Like I, I'm always, but I think, it. I think in, in Argentina, he, or I think where he publishes is he'll publish with anyone who says, okay, I'll publish you. And you say, okay, you know, <laughs> small press, big press, you know, fly by night operation. He'll, he'll go, okay, if you want. And that's how he, the books keep coming out. That's great. It's like he's written like a hundred books at this point, I think. It's insane. I'd never heard of this thing that he was doing, which is just he's always going forward. He doesn't go back and and necessarily edit it all together. If we trust the reports. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like those everyone has everyone has their PR, but like what does he really do? I don't know. I, he may come closer. He may come close. It feels like that there is a uh, that that is what he's doing. Something very similar. And constant momentum as you're saying like he's thinking about it he's it's it's in his like artistic sort of thesis statement and it's funny because bef i had read this book and 
um, ghosts without knowing that. And now looking back, it makes me like feel weirder about it because I'm just like, oh, like I was really trying to find like these connections that are probably not, that are more subconscious than something that is necessarily like, oh, he meant for those, that those echoes or those, um, you know, thematic flights. And so it, it was an interesting thing to learn. It's, it's like when you, you know, like don't meet your heroes type of thing or just, um, you know, it's not always great to know like the, how CGI and, you know, puppetry were mixed to create this alien or whatever. Like sometimes it's better to just experience the alien as an alien on the page and, and not really have to deal with how it was made. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes I think of him as like, he's an improviser. You know, he's set up, he's, yeah. he's, he's a solo, he's a jazz soloist and he, he, he sets himself up and then he's, he knows roughly what he's, you know, what, roughly what the theme is, is going to be. And then he riffs. And, uh, you know, you can't, you can't quite fault an improviser for going, you know, that one, that one's a little inconsistent <laughs> or with what you did before, you know, it's, it's just of the, the miracle of the moment, you know? Right. Yeah. I love his stuff. Even the stuff that I don't love. I, I, um, <laughs> after Patty Smith talked about him at the, I think it was the end of M train and my book club read an episode in the life of a landscape painter. And I remember being like that, this book is weird, but cool. Like I want to read more by this guy. And I picked up, I think it was the literary conference and immediately just the fact that it was wildly different. I remember being like, what the fuck is going on? Mm -hmm. And, um, I just, when, when you, when we were emailing and you were like, oh, what if we do conversations? I had just finished reading The Divorce, which is his most recently published book. And it is a more traditional narrative in a way that some of his other recent ones haven't been. But it, it caused me to go back and like skim read through six or seven of them just to sort of be immersed in that weirdness again and you saying that he's kind of made his own genre feels really right like there's nobody who does quite this thing mm -hmm. whether or not he does it well and the fact that he even seems to be like yeah that one wasn't so good okay <laughs> on to the next one like there's something i don't know there's something kind of appealing about that i couldn't ever do it myself but i admire the fact that there's somebody out there doing that in some ways he's a conceptual artist you know um, yeah he, and uh, the the other, I mean, I'm not an I'm not an IRA expert, but I do. But he, but just that idea of his concept, the idea of his project, um, did speak to me and gave me courage to break continuity. And, and uh, that's what that's what I take from him, and that's why I really um, love about him. And also, the other thing is, we're getting all these translations, and they're they're not in order. Like we're getting mm -hmm. things, you know, uh, that are for. Uh, by luck, by circumstance, we get in the order that we get them. So his development is a little is a little tricky. I was I I don't know if this makes sense, but I went to the Jasper John show recently, mm. uh, and some of the some of the Jasper Johns, you'll look at them, and they're um, they're so referential about images that he's been playing with for years and years mm -hmm. that it's almost like uh, you have to know it, the retrospective is the right way to see it. You see the development. Uh, and then when you get one-offs, you get you get something. Just like when you read an Ira, you get something uh, that something maybe spectacular even, but 
to understand what's going on, you kind of have to see the whole development. Some artists work that way more than others. And I think for both of those, um, seeing the development over time is, uh, is informative, is useful. It's funny, it feels almost like a relationship to comic books where you don't want to come in midstream, but like if you just read an issue of what's going on in Spider-Man, like you would know basically what's going on in Spider-Man, but like uh, you, it would all mean so much more to you if you'd read the last 30. Um, <laughs> and so I feel like there, there is like the comic bookification of your novel process is, I, I kind of like that a lot. You know, there's there's these huge epics that are you know Spider-Man or, or you know where you you the soap opera is you have to know the backstory of all the characters here. <laughs> but in these artists' cases, it's a little different. It's the in some ways it's the same, but it's also like uh, there was a use of a particular character, of a particular style, and you saw that it meant something to the artist, and then it keeps coming up. And so it, it's like it's it's a different kind of information. It's like how the artist is relating to their to their medium or to their work. It's not necessarily a character's backstory. So it's interesting to see, it's really, you're following one mind through time rather than just like all these different characters. It, it resists death of the author though. I mean, like you really end up thinking about his mental state far more than I think that, than, you know, I feel like I am thinking about like Franzen's mental state, <laughs> you know, in the midst of Crossroads, yeah. Right. There is Go ahead. No, 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 you go ahead. No, you should go. I, 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 um, I don't think I've ever, I've told two people about this project and they were the two people who were involved in it for the brief time that I was working on it. I had this idea of writing a song inspired by each Cesar Ira book that I read. And I wrote four or five songs and only one of them was kind of okay-ish. But I recorded, and it's just like it's collecting dust somewhere. But that idea of the outro, that, outro music to this podcast, <laughs> yeah, the idea that there's that one artist, that one mind, could inspire such wildly disparate responses. Let alone, you know, like I'm uh, the the one that I did was um, the miracle cures of Dr. Ira which has like an O. Henry style punchline at the end almost. And I felt like I like wrote the song. It was like a very jaunty thing. There's one that I had, like I was trying to do strings and it was a big thing for Shantytown. And it was like in three because of the carousel at the end. All of this, just so wildly different. And the fact that that was all inspired by, by one person. Mm. You can respond to his work in a way that feels different from or that feels similar to responding to visual art. Like it, it, it can inspire such wildly, here's two Rothkos, I feel totally different looking at them in a way that, you know, Christopher, to your point, like the, the two most disparate novels by almost any other novelist I can think of, they still feel closer together than like even two relatively similar Cesar Ira books. Mm. Yeah, he, he's, definitely, he's definitely exploring and an artist of the conceptual and philosophical more than he is like a character and plot, for sure, yeah. uh -huh. right? And, and I think that, 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 and that gives us entry to, to kind of a different, different place. And, and I think that's why you could do, uh, 
that's why you are inspired to do different songs based on different books. Yeah. Uh, that probably wouldn't work for a lot of writers. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> you said that Ira gave you confidence in jumping genre or or sort of writing through a continuum. And I'm, I'm curious to know more about that. Um, where in the writing process, where in your writing process did you discover Ira? And when did, how did you start like bringing that inspiration into your work? That's a good question. I don't know when I, I think Literary Conference was the first book I read of his. So, and it probably read it within a year or two of it coming out. So I don't know when that was. Um, and I think that it was, uh, I think he did give me a certain amount of confidence, but I also think that I had been thinking about um, uh, issues of continuity. I had thought a lot about Boonwell's, uh, I think it's the obscure object uh, of desire, but where uh, a different actress plays mm -hmm. a movie, uh, you know, a different actress plays the same character, uh, gets swapped out. And I remember the screenwriter for that movie is a partner of Boonwell's, uh, and he uh, is a well-known writer, uh, but whose name I suddenly forget. But um, he he has some quip about this, the, this idea of switching the actors, the actress, and something like it was just a rainy day idea, you know, mm. like the, just this. <laughs> but it unlocked it unlocks so much, you know. Uh, it. And it could be, you know, part, part, it's a rainy day idea. Why you say that is because part of you thinks it's just a gimmick, you know, it's probably not gonna be, not gonna be great. Let's just try it. And then it does unlock something and it shows you, it shows you something about the audience's relationship to a character, about even the idea of a character, which is a weird technology that novels always use. Mm -hmm. um, so I think I had been thinking about it, but in, I think in the literary conference doesn't, uh, it's, it starts out with a boy and he turns into a nun at the end or something like that. Maybe mm -hmm. one of you can, can say better, but, um, but it, was, it was along the same kind of logic as that, that, uh, that shift in the Bunuel. And I like that idea. I think that, uh, I think that what moves us in stories is not, uh, is not necessarily what we, what we think. We grasp on the idea of there's a character and they go through this thing, and we're inspired by that that character, and that which who's a who's in our mind is a person, and they've gone through this trial, and we've learned something or something similar to that. But in fact, it's just the contours of the narrative, contours of the story, and that's what these concepts reveal to us. Uh, where exactly is the the where exactly does the meaning lie? Uh, and so, I don't know. So Ira gave me confidence uh, to think this way, I, and he kind of opened. Um, open that conceptual door a little bit more for me. Mm. I love that. I mean, there's, I, I, I feel like people often do this in their acknowledgments or um, just straight up in the book that you can see, like, they put the thank you right there. Like, thank you for giving me a little bit of an open door. I always think that that's nice. Um, and I feel like, you know, Ira's in this book, isn't he is, right? I'm not making it's, that up. As the robot, right? <laughs> he starts it off. He starts yeah. it off. <laughs> so I, I I appreciate when when there's connections like that. It, it um it, I was so glad to be reading Ira right after Search History. They felt uh, a kinship, although the common ground I think that they both point to is this is this conceptual part. You know, is where they're thinking about how narratives operate, what fiction is. That, that's that's 
the the place that they're related but yeah they're pretty different <laughs> yeah they're like they're doorways to one another yeah like you can if yeah. you come from one to the other you'll be like oh i get it in a way that i think yeah. is is a fun it's fun to find those doors yeah um maybe we should actually recommend some doorways to the to the good people yes Drew, do you want to start recommending something to the folks? Sure. Um, I have another small press to recommend. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't even have time to talk about your work as the editor of a press, Eugene, but I recently had a conversation with Sam Riviere, who wrote Dead Souls. Uh, he has a small press called If a Leaf Falls, and he publishes chapbooks similarly to the like breaking and entering style, pretty small, um, you know, staple bound, but it's, it's poetry or like prose poetry. He has an email list and an Instagram account and will occasionally just post like, Hey, two new chapbooks, five pounds, free shipping in the UK, email me at my hotmail address. And like, <laughs> I love it so much. And I just, it, it, every once in a while, I think I go through bursts of like wanting to find little presses that are just do like truly indie presses. Um, and right now I'm obsessed. I wish I could go back and buy all of them, but they're like editions of a hundred and the shipping from the UK to here cost more than the three pamphlets that I bought. And you know what? <laughs> it doesn't matter. Cause they were fucking great. Um, <laughs> And the other thing I'll recommend is I know that there are a lot of nerds who listen to this show uh, and maybe had opinions about the live action Cowboy Bebop reimagining or whatever. It's fun. It's so much fun. I've had a hard time watching TV for the last five years of my life. And that show has been one of the few things that reliably I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to watch an episode of this. And John Cho's hair looks great. And the set design is cool. Every other shot is a Dutch angle. And I'm like, you know what? I don't care that it's not as good as the anime was. I'm having a nice time. Yeah. And sometimes it's just okay to have a nice time. Honestly, that's maybe my recommendation. <laughs> Go have yourself a nice time. <laughs> yeah, over and above the specifics of the Cowboy Bebop reimagining. I think Just the like, visuals for Cowboy Bebop were terrific. When and the the news that they were canceling it after one season was shocking. Shocking. Um, I don't even I don't watch much TV, but I would watch that I would watch that show. And I don't know about the the history behind it, but I, I watched four or five episodes, or however, however many episodes, and they were some of the writing was not. Yeah. But the but the, uh, but the but I thought I thought they were going for something and. Uh, a, I was I was a little shocked that they put that much production money into it. Yeah. And B, and I, and B that I was I thought, oh, this is going to take off, and then C that it was canceled. All that was a whole surprising journey. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have something you'd like to recommend, Eugene? Um, I was going to recommend uh, uh, Percival Everett's not his latest, but Telephone, which uh, which 
uh, I read only one of. Uh, this, this, <laughs> uh, and there are, uh, the, the, the spoiler is that there are, uh, are three versions of this, of this book. Um, and a couple friends of mine uh, started reading it and we all bought one. And he, my, my friend sent me the copy that he read, which was different from the copy I read. And we realized Ooh. that the compasses <gasps> on the top are slightly different for the different versions. So there's a little little bit Whoa. of information. Uh, um, but it's it's it was it was also very moving um, uh, about a well, I won't a little bit about um, the fear and loss of a child. I think is in there. Uh, the fear and loss uh, as a parent of losing a child is in there. Um, the kind of uh, that was very moving, and that, that's a small part of it. He's also a, a geologist, and uh, it kind of uh, transforms into this adventure tale. Um, and I just think that the, uh, again, the concept behind publishing three different versions of your novel and trying not to tell people, I thought that was great. And I think that he's, <laughs> he's amazing, uh, also prolific, um, and, uh, super various uh, impressively various so so that's a wreck wow nice. that have you read his new one too i did i really liked it uh, that was, it was a trip it was, it was very funny <laughs> i mean yeah. i think he i think he just thought of the initial prep the revenge premise and thought mm -hmm. i can take this the whole way <laughs> and that was pretty good christopher take us home i um I love Christmas and many things that are part of it. And I picked up this book last year. Um, I actually bought it in November last year and it didn't come for Christmas. And it's called Christmas, a biography by Judith Flanders. And it's just truly the history of Christmas. And it is so full of little things that, you know, if I were going to holiday parties. I'm not sure they're going to happen this year, uh, but if I were going, I would, I feel like I would be insufferably like, oh, you know, <laughs> you know about <laughs> so many parts of Christmas and um, the origins. And, you know, one of the things that I really love about it is that I've already encountered is like 20 years after Christmas, like was recorded in history as something that people were celebrating. They were already talking about like, ugh this is not as good as Christmas used to be. It's gotten really commercial. Uh, it's really like a big deal now. Like, a, like Christmas is bad. Don't you remember when we first brought this up? Uh, so I think that that's really funny. And, you know, Christmas is just, I, I love Christmas spirit. I love knowing um, this history of this thing that is a complete amalgamation of a million things. Like, it, and it always has been. You know, it's it started as a weird amalgamation of a bunch of things. So the idea that it's just remained this weird like celebration monster um, <laughs> is is in keeping with just our historical need to party in winter. <laughs> um, so Maybe we should go around saying "Happy Celebration Monster" to <laughs> <laughs> Happy Celebration Monster. Uh, that's the war on Christmas right there. Uh, so. So yeah, Christmas, a biography um, and good celebration monster to us all because, you know, it's, it's definitely the, the season, but it, this book is really, really fun to be reading right now. 
And it's definitely not the type of thing that you read in January when your copy comes. <laughs> it makes so much more sense when you've got like decorations up. Well, Eugene, thank you so much for joining us in the damn library. We yeah. had such a good time reading Ira with you and Search History is a complete, I mean, you wanted us to encounter something exciting and unexpected and that is definitely what that book does. Um, and while you're doing that, you're tackling grief. It's an amazing thing that um, it's a really unreal thing. So I'm so glad we could talk to you about it. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And uh, I plan to make a, a cocktail very soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, to the people at home, if you want to make any cocktail, this cocktail or cocktails pass, go to so many slash the damn bar. Every, I think we're at 176 cocktails at this point wild um, that are up there um and all of our episodes are there also every book that we mention is held under each episode's individual card so if you're like what was that book we've got it written down on so many damn books.com um we also like if you're online anyway uh, <laughs> going to itunes and giving us a good review we really appreciate those and we also of course appreciate when you go to our patreon.com slash smdb and support the show 